This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Larry Doyle. Now, Larry served two tours as a Marine during Vietnam before transitioning out and entering into the world of journalism, ultimately becoming one of the most respected figures in his profession. So we discuss a host of topics from his Vietnam experience, his journey into journalism, interviewing President Nelson Mandela the day after he was released from Robben Island, his own perception of the devolution of mainstream media, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Larry Doyle. Enjoy. Larry, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for welcoming me to your beautiful home here on Sanibel Island. I've never been on this side of uh, Florida before, and it's absolutely stunning. So thank you first. It's the antithesis of the east coast of Florida. <laughs> but sometimes I think the greatest difference between the coasts is there's not much of a pulse here. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I love. Do you know um, uh, Crescent Beach, South yeah, of St. Sure. Augustine? See, I love that. There's, there's a real strong pulse there. So, yeah. So, as we we're recording this, there is a, potentially a hurricane bearing down on us. So, <laughs> just a little backstory there. Um, so, I want to thank Mel first, Melvin Downs, um, former SAS uh, special operator who was on the show as well. Just as an icebreaker, how do you know Mel? Well, once the war in Iraq began, CBS News, the organization I worked for, as well as most of the major Western news organizations, finally got hit to the fact that we're putting our people in dangerous places. What can we do to help them? Uh, CBS uh, reached out and contracted with a, an outfit called Pilgrims. It was a British security company. Remarkable for the fact that its staff members were all former British Special Air Service people, SAS people, members of the regiment, as they always reminded me. And I'll tell you, they were a remarkable group. I mean, they were schooled not only in survival techniques, protection techniques, but one member of the team was always a well-accomplished medic which, I mean, I thought, and I thought that person was the most important member of the team. Uh, Mel had expertise in both security and medicine. Uh, so we became very good friends because he was a very reliable guy. I mean, his decisions were made after he reviewed an accumulation of the facts 
I mean, and often I would have discussions with the security team acknowledging the fact that we as journalists were often going to be in conflict with their security concerns. In other words, I would say, well, no, I, I want to go to Sadr City in Baghdad because, and the security team would say, well, you know, that's a no-go zone. I said, well, you know, no-go for you, but I, it's must-go for me. So we would work some plan out and usually, you know, take a couple of days to work out a plan that we could both achieve our goals. And yeah, we got into Sadr City. We were escorted by members of the uh, mighty Saudi Sadr Army. Um, our security people had to leave us at the gateway to Sadr City, but they knew where we were. We had arrangements that every hour we would make a call. We had a code word. If we used that, that meant we were in trouble. At that point, the security, our security guys, Mel and his team, would alert the nearest quick reaction force the Americans had in the neighborhood and see what they could do to give us a head. So, I mean, uh, without a doubt, and without exaggeration either, uh, I would have to say that Mel, on a number of occasions, saved our lives and certainly gave us excellent advice how to keep safe. I owe him, big time. <laughs> well, it's so good to hear. I mean, this cross-pollination between all these amazing people that come on this, this podcast. And at the end, I'll ask you the same thing. I ask, who would you recommend as a guest? And you were the person you know, he suggested. And obviously, the feeling was completely mutual from him as well. I would, I know that you obviously spent your career in journalism. You're extremely well respected. And there's, and there's another kind of side conversation there, as we talked about on the phone the other day regarding modern journalism. Um, but I would love to paint the picture because I know you were in the military before you ever even entered that field. So starting at the very beginning, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born right in the middle of New York City in uh, the borough called the Bronx. Um, grew up there in my early years. And then I guess I was about 10 or 11. The family moved north of the city uh, to an area called Westchester County, cheek by jowl to New York City, but often referred to as, oh, they're moving upstate. <laughs> Um, and even though we were living upstate, I went back to the city for high school. So I spent four years of high school in the, in the city. Uh, after that, went off to college. While I was in college, a thing called ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps, uh, was a mandatory class. I thought it was a horrid waste of time because it was one hour of silly drills every week and two hours of classroom. Well, along came a Marine recruiter to the campus. This is in 1961. 
And he was offering a program called the PLC program, Platoon Leader Score, where you gave up your summer vacations and you went to Quantico, Virginia, to the Marine training base there. And if you signed up for the PLC program, you gave up a substantial part of your summers, but you also didn't have to take ROTC. <laughs> so you did it to get out of ROTC. So I jumped at that <laughs> because, remember, this is 61. The world is pretty much at peace. So I envisioned getting out of college in 1965, freshly commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, spiffy uniform, in pretty good shape probably, and being assigned to guarding the embassy in Paris. I mean, I really thought that was my future. Well, things changed. <laughs> so I wound up uh, spending some time overseas, uh, a little bit uh, more than two years, where I learned a lot. And when I came back, like, like a lot of veterans, um, I, was, I was confused. I didn't know. Uh, I was unhappy with the reception uh, toward veterans in this country. Uh, I understood the frustrations and the quibbles about the war and its morality, et cetera. Um, but I also, you know, I graduated from college as an English major. You know, what do you do with that? Not so much. But I said, hmm, what to do? Well, at that point, there was a, a government program called the GI Bill, where the government would give you assistance to pursue education. So I said, well, you know, I've got nothing on my plate. What the hell? I'll take a chance. I'll see if I qualify. I did. And uh, off I went to graduate school. And while in graduate school, I was in a class called Communication Arts. Sounds like a journalism class. It was a PR class. Right? But there were other people in my class who were, had jobs at the local television station in town, which was South Bend, Indiana, right? And I, chatting them up, they said, you know, you, you, you ought to go down and see if there's, you know, they're always, they're, they hire a lot of us, you know? And so I went down and I got a job there. <laughs> it was a, 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 a combination radio television station. It was an AM and FM radio station, a TV station, and it was owned by a newspaper, right? So my original job there was at 6 o'clock, I would read a 15-minute newscast on the AM station. At 8 o'clock, between 8 and 9, I would host a classical music hour. And at 10 o'clock, this is central time, I was the uh, sports reporter on that news show. I mean, I knew nothing about classical music, had no interest in classical music, but I learned very quickly how to read from the back of the album covers and say, Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Eugene Ormandy. First violin, James Gearing. <laughs> <laughs> So some of the people uh, who were veterans at, at the TV station 
told me after about a year, you know, um, they heard there was a job at CBS News in Washington. I said, oh, well, tell me about it. They told me about it. And I applied. CBS took me to Washington. I did an interview with them and they hired me uh, on what they call the uh, Washington Assignment Desk, which is a, you know, it's an editorial slash clerical position, but important. It gets the day started. It determines the coverage of it's, it's, you know. Um, and after that, I just uh, moved on and was offered a job in New York as the deputy foreign editor, to which I said, increase in salary, move to New York. Eh, why the hell? Why not? Right? So I get to New York, and I met the foreign editor, and I said, listen, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know the capitals of half the countries of the world. He said, don't worry, we're all learning. <laughs> so I did that for a year, and they made me the New York bureau chief, which is in charge of the Northeast part of the United States. It's strictly a management job. Um I did that for a few years, and a CBS show called Sunday Morning went on the air in 1979, anchored by a fellow named Charles Geralt, a legendary broadcaster, right? And I said, boy, that sounds like a hell of a show, a 90-minute news magazine on Sunday morning, slow-paced, time to examine issues. So I went over, and I talked to the executive producer there, and I got hired for that show, a remarkable show on the air to this day, probably has won as many awards for journalism for CBS News than any other program it's ever put on the air other than 60 Minutes. Well, as part of my time producing stories at Sunday morning, I made a couple of overseas trips. Went to Lebanon, went to Central America, both places in conflict at the time. And I said, you know, I kind of like this being out in the field. So I went back to New York and I said, you know, um, how about I make a deal with you? I split my time between Sunday morning and, and you know, working on the foreign side. And they said, done deal. So then I, I started to travel rather extensively. <laughs> and I think the other, not the other day, months ago, my sons and I were talking about travel and we went to a world atlas and we checked off countries and my, my passport has been stamped in 124 countries. <laughs> and I'm proud to say, I think I've only been asked to leave three of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to just kind of backtrack for a second because now as people kind of hear through this journey so far, obviously you've got, you know, an incredible lens when it comes to journalists through all these different roles and then ultimately internationally. Going all the way back to that young man in ROTC, and it's funny, my son's in JROTC at the moment, so he's in the exact, you know, the high school version. Um, what... As a young man, were you seeing as far as journalism on the beginning of the, the Vietnam War? So let's start with that. 
I didn't even think about journalism at the start of the Vietnam War. Uh, in my time, I never saw a journalist uh, in Vietnam. I mean, um, you know, we were aware they were there because we heard about their reports, but I, I never came across any. Uh, so I, you know, I couldn't gauge their work, but in conversations I had with friends and relatives uh, back in the States, it seemed to me from what I was seeing and what they were reporting was pretty accurate. And I thought, well, maybe these guys aren't so bad because I'm seeing what they're writing. And I know what they're writing isn't popular in some areas, but it's truth. Because it seems from conversations I've had that that was like the first conflict where we're starting to see actual, you know, as you said, um, the, the, what was being reported wasn't so much a kind of propaganda or downplaying, but actually some of the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Vietnam War. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly, there were, there were, I think, two disparate parts of journalism at the time. One that was getting accurate reporting from the field, and the other was only too happy to absorb the nonsense that was coming out of the Pentagon at the time and what is famously known as the five o'clock follies in Saigon, which was wartime propaganda. So it, it kind of, I mean, not a big bright light went off, but it kind of did strike me that, you know, wow, you know, maybe this journalism stuff is important. Because it can tell the truth. It can let people know what's going on. And then I, I realized as the years went by, well, the only way to do that is if you or eyes, ears, heart, and brains are there to see it. And that's when I finally I said to myself, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice quite a bit regarding your home life, etc. Because I think it's really important to be able to go out and fairly report. And I've been involved in a number of stories that the United States government went to some lengths to push back against. And fortunately, with the backing of CBS, they never succeeded. But those, those are struggles, and those struggles continue today and probably they're even more magnified today because the country is more divided now than it ever has been. I just came from a discussion um, about a democracy and the state of democracy in this country and uh, a panel of 24 uh, folks and 20 of them are pessimistic and these are smart people. I am pessimistic. I think we're on a uh, we're on a slide, reversible, but a slide that is constantly tilting in the wrong way. So we discussed, I think, this kind of topic on the phone a few weeks ago. Me, my perspective of what I see on the television now, uh, 
coming from England, growing up with the BBC, and then there's a, there's a thing called John Craven's News Round, which was a almost like a BBC for children. Very kind of matter of fact. I was thinking on the drive down here. One thing I think that you took away from that kind of news as well was empathy. Like this is this is happening in this country, and it's really bad. And you left away with like, God, those poor people. How can we help? And there was a lot of fundraising and stuff that came out of that. Fast forward to the last few years in America, my own personal perspective of what most people are subjected to, whether it's CNN or Fox, which to me looks like the exact same blueprint with a different color tie, is not only the division it's driving, but literally the screen is divided into four and four people are arguing with each other and and offering opinions and not journalism. So... With this lens, and obviously we'll backtrack in your timeline, timeline again, but as a respected and awarded journalist, what is your perception of today's, I'm using air quotes, mainstream media and the impact that's had on this division in this country? Well, I think the main problem with the media today is there's too little reporting and a lot too much opinioning. I mean, I've, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who, uh, who work at CNN. Uh, one of my sons works at MSNBC. Um, I retain a, a number of friends at, at CBS, ABC, and NBC. And uh, I, I, in general, the the people, and there aren't that many of us left of my age, are are not bullish on the future of journalism. I mean, it it's become as divided a pulpit as the political side. And it is now, it's more political than repertorial. I mean, I can't stand watching some of these cable shows when they have three or four people because I can't understand a damn word any of them are saying. Right? I mean, blah, blah, blah. And the other one interrupts and then, oh, it's nutty. And that's all it is. It's sound. It's what we're about now. Political sound, that's it. No, not political discourse, not common sense politically. Noise, political noise. That's all we're hearing. Well, I want to get, I mean, there's, there's so many great chapters of your journalistic journey, so I definitely want to go back. But what, through this journey, I mean, I know even with, with um, CBS, you, you know, were let go and then rehired and everything. So even then there was kind of, you know, politics behind, but what are you seeing? What has been the disassembling of journalism that you knew and loved in the 70s, 80s, 90s to where we are now? I think the biggest problem is there's too much. I mean, when I started in the, 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 in the game, there was CBS, NBC, it's early 70s. ABC was still relatively new at that time to the news game, but that was it. And those three networks did half an hour each of national news, 6.30 Eastern time to 7, right? The audience was 50 to 60 million people. Now, the cumulative audience of those three networks is maybe... 21 or 22 million people. Back in, in, the, in the 70s, the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, one show had 21 million people's viewers. So 
and I, I I really think that the big those three networks do straight news reporting between six thirty and seven, but no one's watching. There's just too much stuff out there, and you know, this is a country. I'm sure you're aware that likes to be amused. It likes to be entertained. That's the easy way out. And what's more entertaining than watching a bunch of politicians lie to each other, talk over each other, beat each other up, contradict each other, right? This is kind of funny stuff. Ha, ha, ha. You know, it, it, uh, it takes an effort to listen to or read straight news, be informed, and then maybe you have to make a decision. There's just too much out there now. And and I think the too much is weighed heavily on the side of the talk fests, the opinion gabs, the gab fests, blah, blah, blah. Now, with that, again, my complete white belt, layman's eyes, when I look at like you said, the, the lengthening, the amplification of news coverage, and sadly it will be a school shooting. Or, it doesn't matter the topic. You can see that element of great. Now we've got eyeballs. COVID's a perfect example. Um, I can't help but think that ultimately the, the kind of business model is the more clickbait style conversations and topics we bring on, the more eyeballs are going to be on our news network, the more money we can charge for the advertising space. Has that corporate side of things also factored into more, more, more that's diluting the news? Well, um, not in not so much in my experiences at, at CBS, although every, everything is cost out now. I mean, well, <laughs> When I started working at, at CBS, it was a corporation that had, I believe, 12 divisions, disparate divisions. They owned things like Sony Music, Steinway Pianos, Simon & Schuster Publishing, the New York Yankee baseball team, I mean, and CBS News was a division. And at that time, the chairman and vice chairman of CBS Corporation had an approach to the news division of, they called it uh, the Tiffany of the network. And we were unrestrained about money. I mean, we could do anything because they had 11 other divisions that were keeping the ship afloat and it's this, you know, this crazy crowd over on West 57th Street in New York. They get a lot of awards and a lot of good publicity. So leave them alone. And so, I, you know, I grew up in, in a journalistic era of absolutely being spoiled. I mean, I don't want to be too glib about it, but truly money was not an object. You know, it just... It wasn't considered, you know. If oh, you you need a uh, another crew. Uh, okay, we'll send a second crew in. Oh, you need this. You need that. Oh, you need to charter a plane. Go ahead, charter the plane. Now, what was the the kind of uh, 
reason behind that? I mean, was it truly understanding that you guys were needing the resources to get a good story and tell, tell the right story to the public? There are a lot of differences. The difference is at that time, the people that ran the place and basically owned the place had a lot of regard for news. They cared about news. They thought it was important. They didn't see news as an imperative moneymaker. They didn't see it as a leg that would prop up the entire corporation. It was something we want to be proud of, something we should do well. We'll do it as the best we can, and we'll give those people as much resource as they can you know, handle and they need. That changed considerably, particularly in the 80s, when CBS changed ownership and they were purchased by a guy named Lawrence Tisch, no background in, in broadcasting at all. He owned Lowe's Hotels, Lowe's Movie Theaters, and a bunch of other things, and Boulevard Watch, right? Um, ABC was purchased by a larger corporation, NBC too. As soon as that was that dynamic shift between managements that were invested in news and businesses that saw their news divisions imperative as moneymakers, everything changed. That's when the hammer came down and and the budgets were tightened and scrutinized. That's when you think you saw that shift from news to entertainment as well? <laughs> that actually came came later. The, the, the money guys came in, I guess they came to most influence in the mid-80s. But the uh, the advent of the cable talkers, I guess, really started what in around 1990 when CNN finally got on the air, and then when the other networks saw how there could be additional programming, a CNN 24-hour network. They branched out. You know, NBC created MSNBC, which is, you know, their cable channel. Um, the Fox Network, you know, they have, you know, the Fox News, Fox Nation, um, and, and then they have the, uh, the talk side of, of Fox. So they, <coughs> the managers, uh, most of whom came from, pretty influential jobs in business began to look at the, the industry as a business. You know, it was less of a necessity or a calling for those in it as it was, well, damn it, everything else we do, we do makes money. Why can't this little bend? And everything, and it'll never go back. I mean, the, the, uh, the purse strings are never going to be loosened. You know, I mean, one of one of my uh, my my downfall at CBS <laughs> was uh, I had a uh, I don't know how to put it nicely a discussion with the uh, the senior management of the news division about the resources that were available to us covering foreign not only conflicts, 
but foreign bureaus. And uh, they had tightened things. I mean, um, so they decided they didn't need my opinion. <laughs> and I said, that's okay. All right. I left. They left a year left after. And the new chairman of the CBS News Division called me and said, come back. <laughs> <laughs> so I came back for another six or so years. <laughs> and that was right before you moved to Florida. Is that right? After that? No. It was... I left, I, no, I'm not kidding, let's not cherry cut. I was fired in February of 2010. Now, at that, this is to this, and I didn't mind, I'll tell you why. At that time, I had a contract with them that was guaranteed, and I was guaranteed employment until December 31st of 2010. So they told me, like February, whatever day, I didn't have to come to work. And I said, done deal. I called my agent. And I said, here's the deal. I said, well, they just gave you 11 months off and they're paying you. <laughs> so that was in February. And in June of 2010, we moved here. We bought the, the, this house and gutted it. And every square inch has been redone. So we basically lived in a shell here for about six months. It's beautiful, by the way. Gorgeous. It's an interesting. If it had a pulse, it'd be great. But <laughs> a lot of people love the, uh, they love it because it's quiet. And, you know, if, if we sit out here long enough, you'll see all kinds of critters walking by. Yeah, Florida's amazing for that. Um, with the uh, the kind of, news that today's society is exposed to. I want to ask you a question based on your time in Vietnam. And the reason is the average person who doesn't deploy really gets a very polarizing view of war. Either it's kill them all, let God sort them out, or it's they're all baby killers. So all that time ago when you were deployed, was were there any times regardless of the politics that sent you overseas that you realize that there were some some evil people that need to be taken care of. I thought anyone who was trying to kill me was pretty evil. <laughs> yeah, but <clears throat> you know, going back to what you what you said about the war and the the concepts and the perceptions about the war, I happened to look last night um, at, a, at a list of Vietnam movies. Right. Um, and it's a long list, and some of the names on it are well-known. Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, right? But so many Vietnam-era films were made, and it's remarkable because I, I copied down descriptive phrases of these films, and most of them were about veterans, and here are the adjectives that were used. Disturbed veteran. Psychotic veteran. Turns vigilante veteran. Goes on rampage veteran. Goes insane veteran. 
Now, most of these were smaller films, but I noticed they're available on, you know, the Netflixes of the world, some of them. So they're still out there. I mean, that is shameful. Just shameful. What was your um, coming, you know, uh, transitioning out the military experience, coming home experience? I had a a few people from the Vietnam era on. One was uh, Major James Capers, who's a renowned Marine recon founder. Um, He was wounded and horrendous story. He's there on the sidewalk. I forget where they landed, but he's waiting for the transport unit to take him away. And someone walks up and urinates on him. And he's still you know, near mortally wounded. Another one, Rich Rice, who was a CAG member, same thing. And and so you you hear, you know, we, we asked these men, some signed up, many of whom, men and women, were forced to go over there. And then when they come back, they have this kind of reception and we wonder why there is a mental health issue in you know, many of our veterans. And you compare that to some of the the kind of traditions of the warrior coming home in, in more tribal cultures. And there's a ceremony, there's an offload, there's, there's, there's gratitude. So what did you experience yourself coming back from Vietnam? Well, perhaps I, I overprotected myself. For quite some time, not a long time, but quite some time, um, I'd say close to family. I didn't engage in, you know, public meetings that discussed the war. I did... I avoided, you know, private discussions. I just, I thought, you know, going back, rehashing this, either pro or con, is not going to do me any good. I'm not going to change anyone's mind. No one's going to change my mind. And, you know, I just said, maybe best for you, and this is a selfish thing, you need to step back. Not avoid the realities, but don't put yourself in a position you have to address them, particularly with someone else. You know, it was kind of, I want to avoid conflict. <laughs> and that helped me. Um, every, you know, everybody dealt with things differently. I mean, you know, I admire a lot of veterans I know who joined the anti-war movement. I thought that was pretty courageous of them, you know, to go against their training and, in a lot of cases, their family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I tried to go the opposite way into a, a bit of isolation because that worked for me. I mean, that's the whole thing. What works, there's no one path that is universally beneficial. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and like you said, the problem is when we hear PTSD until recently, that was what it was. Oh, my God, it's a veteran with a gun. They're going to shoot up the insert, whatever. Um, Just staying back with your Vietnam deployment for one more second. The other side of that question that we also don't hear is were there any memorable moments of kindness and compassion? I mean, I've heard so many stories of, you know, military veterinarians taking care of local animals to obviously all these medical personnel that bring in men, women, and children of that country that are wounded. Um, there's so many kind of human altruistic stories that never, ever make it to the news. So what about through that lens in your two years in Vietnam? The heroes, for me, were the Navy corpsmen. That's what we had, Navy corpsmen, and the helicopter pilots. 
I mean, so many of us wouldn't be here talking to you without those guys. I mean, I I, I saw Corman do things that were incomprehensible to me and at, at great risk to themselves. And the guys that flew those choppers around, oh, man, I don't know, you know. <laughs> because, you know, I started out, after I finished the PLC program, I was accepted into uh, marine aviation. And I spent a few months in uh, Pensacola, Florida, learning to fly helicopters, right? 18 months of training. Well, a couple of months in, we had what's called a liberty. You know, it's a, had the, the weekend leave. And we were in town knocking down a few beers. And I happened to opine, what a good deal this is, huh? We've got a three-year active duty obligation and 18 months is in training. And one of my mates said, no, that's not how it is. So what are you talking about? He said, no, no. Our three years starts after the 18 months. I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> On Monday, I went in and I said, uh, requesting a reassignment, please, to uh, ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of those Vietnam era helicopters. But I really wanted to fly a helicopter. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Did, did did you ever kind of circle around to that? And the I, I, could, I could get it off the ground. We never... That's as far as we got in get, get Then you were lift off. <laughs> yeah, some of those Vietnam era pilots now fly flight nurses and paramedics. And I've heard many a story from my brethren in the fire service of these crazy I mean, you know, phenomenal, but this this I don't I can't think of any other conflict you would develop that much skill in a helicopter than Vietnam and then to be flying with someone and you're trying to pick someone off a mountainside or off the coast somewhere. And to have that experience, which I'm sure we're starting to lose now, age-wise, but that must have been an amazing time for EMS, for pre-hospital medicine and search and rescue. Yeah, I mean, the era of the of the Vietnam helicopter pilots is well past. I mean, but uh, what they learned and what they taught and their techniques are still used. I remember, I mean, for a while I lived in South Africa, and at one point was doing a story about uh, a national park there called Kruger, which has a lot of animals. Um, <clears throat> and we uh, we had a helicopter pilot take us around to shoot aerials. This guy was, was, he was a South African, but he was American military trained. And I'm telling you, I mean, I, I've never seen, I mean, this was mind boggling. I mean, we came, and he knew where everything in the park was. He knew where to take us to see the elephants, to see the rhinos, to see the lions, right? We saw uh, a, a river that he took us to because that's, that's where rhinos cross. And sure enough, they were like, you know, 15 or 20 starting to cross the river. And he said... We'll go down and get a, a picture. I said, hey, okay, fine. Yeah. Usually, we're happy. The chopper tilts over. The cameraman leans out. You're going to go, right? This guy said, he said, watch this. Said, okay. 
He went down and he put the skids touching the back of one of the rhinos. And I'm sitting there going, get out, get up, get up. <laughs> I mean, that's, and he said, I do this all the time. I mean, it's, you know, this is what I've learned. The skill was mind-boggling. <laughs> well, you talked about Kruger National Park in South Africa. I know one of what I'm assuming is probably one of the, the um, most memorable elements of your career was if I my research is correct you interviewed Nelson Mandela the day after he got out yes uh, we had been <coughs> I was in South Africa for the dying days of the apartheid regime and the release of Nelson Mandela so I mean I saw the country do a complete pivot um, Nelson Mandela was probably as an impressive individual as I've ever encountered. I mean, his I was awed by his mere presence. I'll tell you a funny story. Not funny. He was he was released from Robin Island, Robin's Island prison. Went to Cape Town. We had negotiated with his people to do the first interview uh, after release. And my days aren't correct, but let's just, for for the sake of, of what we're doing, <laughs> let's say he was released on Monday. Um, our agreement was on Tuesday morning, we would do an interview. And uh, his political group, the African National Congress, told us it would be in the Cape Sun Hotel in Cape Town. So he said, okay. And they said, and here's the room you'll use. They had reserved, we were paying for it, but they were reserved, you know, a, a big room. <clears throat> and I said, okay, um, what, what time does Mr. Mandela want to do the interview? He said, 6.30. He said, in the morning? <laughs> yes, I said, with all due respect, the man has just been released 27 years in prison. I said, no, no, that's, he wants to do it at 6.30. And he said, you know, you, you just, you know, be in this room and be all set up and be ready to turn on all your stuff at 6.30. Okay. So we 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 had three crews. The CBS anchorman named Dan Rather was there for it. It was a big deal. Um, we set up everything. The cameramen and the technicians are adjusting the lights. Uh, and about 5.30, I guess, and a, a, a door adjoining the suite that we're in opens. And um, one of uh, Mandela's folks comes in and says, Hi, guys, how you doing? He said, no, we're good. We'll be ready. Okay. 6.30? 6.30, we're ready. Okay. 6.30, that door opens, and Nelson Mandela walks in the room. I'm telling you, my heart wanted to stop. I mean, this is a man whose presence filled the room. I've only met a couple of other people like that. And I got up, walked over, 
introduced myself, shook Mr. Mandela's hand, and sputtered out, you know, I'm, uh, it's at 6.30 in the morning, it wasn't my idea, uh, you know, sorry. Uh, and he, <laughs> and Mandela kind of put his hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay, listen to this, it's okay. I'm on prison time. I'll always be on prison time. And of course, this professional journalism went completely numb. <laughs> so what did you see? I mean, you were there as, you know, as you said, apartheid was falling, um, you know, a very dark history, I think, in European colon, you know, colonization, colonization, excuse me, um, history or colonial history. Um, but obviously the back end of that wasn't a flawless transition either. And, you know, there was a lot of conflict there. What did you witness with your own eyes as far as that kind of metamorphosis that you witnessed? Uh, it was slow. It was painful. It was inevitable. But there was a South African government then run by a fellow named F.W. de Klerk uh, that was in power that was smart enough politically to understand uh, their regime had to make evolutionary changes or was going to come to an end in other ways. Uh, and plus, the um, the influence of, of the world was leaning on the clerk government also. Um, and, you know, it was inevitable, but so, I left South Africa in late 92, six, seven months after Mr. Mandela had been released. But I went back in 1994 to cover their first democratic elections. And that's when it really struck me. I mean, it was moving to see how important democracy was to so many people who had never tasted it, much less learned much about it. It was remarkable. I mean, and I burst out, I admit it, I burst out in tears at one polling station because when we were living um, in Johannesburg, we had a, a couple of South African ladies who took care of the house and stuff like that. Uh, um, and I was out with one of the crews early in the morning getting pictures of people voting and coming out of, of the voting places. And I ran into one of the ladies who worked in the house. Ah, broke down. <laughs> this woman was so proud. She's late 60s, first time voting. She went in and voted. She came out and, and she showed me her hand with a stamp on it. <laughs> Remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was great to see. I watched, obviously, I was a young boy then, but I watched that change. And of course, nothing is black and white. It wasn't like he was an angel his whole life. It was life. there. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It was there. Yeah, good metaphor. Um, but, you know, he wasn't an angel his own, own life. Obviously, Winnie, there was some controversy there. But then I saw, same with Desmond Tutu, like, you know, these become these incredible leaders and these compassionate, altruistic human beings. And then I look at today here, today in the UK, and 
it's not left or right. Like I've been disgusted for decades now, to be honest, because I'm waiting for the real middle of the road leaders that unite a country, not divide <laughs> them. So with, again, this amazing lens that you have, what was it that Nelson Mandela did so differently than we're seeing, you know, year after year in the West? Well, I mean, the most important thing and the obvious thing is he had the support of the nation. I remember South Africa was about, I don't know, 85, 90% black at the time, right? He had overwhelming support. Um, you know, that's that's a critical component. I mean, you know, it, it was legally required, politically expedient, and it had to happen to have an election, but it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, just question of the numbers. I mean, so... Now, particularly in this country, things are so divided, you know, you can't have, or it's almost impossible to have a leader that represents any kind of majority. And therefore, there's always going to be blowback and pushback against anything he does. I think what is most lacking politically in the United States now is common sense. I mean... Here you've got a Senate. It's got 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. A bill comes up for a vote. 50 Democrats vote yes, 50 Republicans vote no. It doesn't matter that overall elements of that bill are beneficial to the majority of Americans. It doesn't matter. We are so politicized and polarized, we don't look at what's best for the nation as a whole. We have no consensus about what's good for the people. It's we are we are stuck in the mud, you know, with our rigid dogmas. And just before uh, we began this discussion, I was in a another discussion. Uh, about democracy in this country. And uh, one of the areas we were discussing was the uh, uh, how um, injurious has Donald Trump been to democracy? And I, I uh, my opinion was, uh, you know, as an individual, I think, yeah, he put a dent in democracy. But more important his adherents and the people who still follow him are running for office now as election deniers. There are secretaries of state in various state contests who want to change the entire pattern of voting. They want the state to be able to certify the vote regardless of what the numbers are. I mean, this is... You know, this is not one that, you know, that old canard of one man, one rule, democracy rules. This is, a you know, an autocratic shift in this country. And, I mean, I think it's wrong. I think it puts us in desperate shape. Um, do we get out of it? Probably not in my lifetime. Well, the, again, the layman observation that I've made um, is that 
the system keeps giving us the same type of human being. Some may hail from the Democrats, some may hail from the Republican side, but I'm waiting for that per, that uniter, that person who's putting the health of the nation, you know, the the happiness of the nation, the reinforcing community and altruism and mentorship and all these values that I think make a nation great. And when you take a step back and look at, again, I'm looking at complete white belt lens, um, that ultimately it seems you have to basically be a millionaire or more to even play the game. And then you have to be willing to take money from certain organizations that will then support you. So if you could be king for a day, what would our potential president selection system look like versus how we have it now? Well, I would get rid of this idea of the electoral college. And I would go to a simple, count up all the votes, the winner got the most. I mean, our electoral process now has been some co-complicated. There are There is no real national voting policy. I mean, states change voter registration laws. They do a, a thing called gerrymandering you know, districts. So a Republican or Democrat is favored in that district. I mean, our, our, our electoral system has become flawed because it's just, it's too complicated. It's almost like our tax system. I mean, what happened to the majority wins? You know, you go back, say, to the 2000 election, you know, Bush Gore. I mean, that, that's when it, you know, began, and then Hillary Clinton, Trump, Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote, loses the election. Biden, Trump, Biden wins the popular vote and the electoral vote. The election doesn't count; it's been fixed. I mean, even when we have an election, nobody wants to accept it. Like right now, the Republicans you can name. I mean, you've got Trump, the Florida governor here, DeSantis, former Secretary of State, you know, Pompeo, Ted Cruz, the senator from, you know, and on and on. They're probably like, if you spoke to a Republican, they would probably name eight or nine people who would be acceptable to them. <laughs> as a candidate, you know, yeah. So, but so. but the, they're quickly winnowed out, and they, you know, and here's how they get winnowed out, which is unfortunate. They don't get winnowed out because of their politics or their policies or what they uh, they stand for. They get winnowed out because they don't have the money. Exactly. So that's my point: is that I think, like I've I've made this observation with, let's say, Trump, Clinton, Biden, Trump, and it's not that Trump's a common denominator. You know, pick pick two people out of the original group. I don't think most people would have picked either of those final two, whether they're Democratic or, or Republican. And so I hear so often, well, it's the lesser of two evils. Well, out of 330 million people, should we be hearing the phrase the lesser of two evils when we get to the final two for the democratic race? I mean, excuse me, the, the presidential race. My observation has always been, who the hell would want the job? Well, that too, and that should change. But I mean, you know, there's, we're, it's, 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 you know, 
water over the dam now and it's inescapable. Um, our politics are all about money. You know, I get a daily email from a fellow here named Charlie Crist who's running for governor against DeSantis, right? And every email I get, and sometimes it's twice a day, Hi, Larry, it's Charlie. Oh, hiya, pal. I haven't seen you in a while, right? Um, <laughs> it's asking for money. You know, it's all about money. Even the University of Florida, I'm still paying off my student debts and they're asking me to donate. I'm like, dude, I'm several, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I'm still paying back for the exorbitant fees that you charge me. And now you're acting like a nonprofit as well? I, I don't think so. Sorry, you know, that's not a conversation I'm, I'm going to have. You know, that student debt issue is interesting. I mean, I think people, you know, first responders, firemen, EMT people, nurses, etc. I think their student debt should be wiped away completely. There's a thing in place, but, and I was like, oh, great. You've got to be a firefighter for, for 10 years or you got to pay for 10 years. But the thing is, you're, you can't make a partial payment. It's got to be a full payment. And as a firefighter, you're struggling right. to make those. And so, and then ultimately, you know, the, the kind of degrees that we're taking, by the time you get there, you've pretty much paid it off anyway. Right. So it's no help whatsoever. That's right. And teachers, I think, should be included. I mean, you Absolutely. know, there's a teacher shortage in this country. And there's always a criticism of the quality of the teachers we have. Well, who wants to be a third grade teacher looking at, 40 brats a day <laughs> and knowing and I owe $80,000 for the privilege of doing this yeah and they're paying for their own school supplies in classrooms and they're having to get a second job over the summer and yeah I think I think it's terrible and you look at the education places like Finland they have a much deeper education before you take on that role right. and they look at the child holistically right. here we do a shortcut and then we're like well don't worry about so much the kids let's just work at you know, these standardized tests and as long as the school looks good and we get our budget <laughs> then then we're golden and, we, and all these children slip through the cracks in the process <laughs> well i want to kind of hit on one more area before we wrap up um i know you ended up in the middle east post 9-11 so what was 9-11 through your eyes and then how did that take you to to iraq and afghanistan after 9-11 to me was i mean i don't know how to describe the shock um i always felt that this country was vulnerable to attack because that's how Life is. I mean, you know, nobody is impregnable. Nobody is perfect. But the shocking scale of the attack, I mean, it, it just it said to me, holy something, we're under, we're under attack. It wasn't like, oh, you know, uh, like in London, a bus was blown up. It, this was like, to me, this was like, this is we're back at war, and I never really went through the angst of trying to sort out uh, the the faults or problems of the intelligence agencies. Why did they know more about this? I mean, you and I know enough to know that no intelligence agency is perfect. 
And I hate to say it, there are a lot of smart guys on the bad side. I mean, I, I've, I, you know, I kept telling people, you know, I, I started to go to the Middle East extensively in, in 1990, um, steeped not with a lot of knowledge of the Middle East, but came away. I, I'd come home and, you know, people would say, oh, you know, those ragheads, those camels. I'd say, you know, hey, hey, dude, these are some of the smartest people I've met. These are not dumb people. Don't think that this country has an exclusive on smart. I mean, I'll tell you how smart this country is. As part of the earlier conversation I was having before you came, I cited a couple of polls that had recently been taken by major legit organizations, right? <laughs> said 25% of the people in the poll could not name one of the three branches of government. Right? I mean, executive, judicial, legislative, the pillars of democracy. If you can't name one of them, you don't know democracy. And then it, it went on to say 50% in another poll could name any branch of the government. <laughs> this is like crazy. You know, and, and that's, you know, is that the future? Is that our future electorate in this country? Could be. Not good. Now, why do you think that is? Why Why is there a disconnect between... Because I know that they do civics, but I think they're kind of taught at, probably, rather than made excited, you know, uh, the interest cultivated in the inner weavings of this country. Why do you think that maybe... You know, I'm making an assumption now that 1950s children would have been more connected than 2022. Because it's more important to learn about artificial intelligence... It's more important to learn about social media and how to use it, pro and con. I mean, it, it you know, it's a dull and boring subject to look at a bicameral legislator. You know, I mean, hey, you know, what's this executive branch? You know what? And, you know, it, we don't have enough young people who are, are interested in the nitty-gritty of what makes this country run. They're interested in the nitty-gritty of how they're going to get ahead. The hell with the rest of you. This is all about meism. Through my eyes, again, looking at the... I wouldn't say it was even post-war, but I mean, as as the consumerism started to grow... And you, you know, again, English eyes coming to America. Like, why is there two pharmacies built right next to each other? Why is Kmart and Walmart right next to each other? And so, what I started seeing as I lived here longer was this, this hero worship, this, um, you know, false god of monopoly that you're the winner if you destroy everyone else. Versus you look at every model around the world 
you know, it's community. Like you and I can both have a pharmacy. Let's just build, you know, different parts of town and we'll, we'll help each other together. So where do you think that kind of selfish element has crept into what was a very, very service oriented country? Well, some people say it's the plague of capitalism. And, you know, this has always been a country where things get swallowed up. You know, big companies are always absorbing little companies and getting bigger. Um, there are very, very rare instances, you know, where the minnow swallows the, the whale. It's always the other way. And, you know, companies get get bigger. They try to hide their bigness by diversifying into other areas. Like, you know... <coughs> um, a big company will suddenly decide also to have a pharmacy as, you know, besides selling T-shirts and, and jeans. You know, it's um, it's the, the it's, I mean, look, let's say kid ourselves. Success, success in this country is measured by your wallet. The size of your wallet, the comfort in your wallet, what you can do with your wallet. I mean, and I think the competitive nature of the Americans gets measured in monetary terms. And success is also, it's not only bred that way, but it's measured that way. I mean, how many people who aren't big wage earners, let's call them, called successes? Yeah, I mean, a lot. You look at all the billionaires, I mean, it's all we hear about. But then, you know, how much altruism and, and compassion and kindness is woven into, especially their early business models, usually very little. And you'll notice, and I always, get, I always uh, take a look at relief efforts that are gathered for, uh, I spent a lot of time in Haiti uh, and and got involved with, you know, a couple of what I thought were very legitimate agencies uh, seeking aid for Haiti. Um, and I always thought to myself, you know, I, I checked these agencies out. They were, you know, outstanding, upstart, good, good groups. But 95% of their, their money came from me and my neighbor. Twenty dollars, fifteen dollars, you know, thirty dollars. And I thought, with all the damn riches in this country, I mean, IBM could take one day's profit and rebuild a city <laughs> in Haiti. Well, I was just in Haiti. I was telling a story to someone yesterday. Um, I went on just a Royal Caribbean cruise, and they've they've got this little portion called Labadee, and the comedian on the ship referred to it as fake Haiti or Jurassic Park. And it's true. There was a giant, you know, electrified fence around the property. But what was so heartbreaking is the people were enjoying Haiti, a beautiful country. The Haitian people that worked for Royal Caribbean had jobs and they were sweet. And, and it just goes to show that, you know, Haiti could be thriving as a tourist nation if it wasn't for the corruption and maybe, you know, if we gave, were able to give a little bit of support. And there, as with Mexico and some of these other places, 
if we actually have policy and, and, and for example, I think prohibition of drugs has caused so much problems in Central and South America, that's why they're leaving those countries. If we actually were able to reverse that and support those nations and we then become their customers, then you would also address the immigration problem that everyone's bitching about. I was in a discussion about Afghanistan, about which I know a little. Um, <coughs> and the discussion was how much aid, this is after the Taliban takeover, how much aid should be given to Afghanistan? And I've, I've got a number of Afghani friends, a couple of whom I actually helped leave recently, um, and I, I had to take the hardline views and contribute nothing. What do you mean? I said, the Taliban gets the money. There is no distribution system outside the Taliban. And isn't that a horrible truth? There are donors lined up who want to help the Afghan people, but where do you put the money that you know it's going to get to the end user? Well, you were in Iraq post 9-11. You were in, were you in Afghanistan as well for a while? Yeah, yeah, no, the 2001, right. Okay, so right when it happened then. Okay, um, so with this journalistic lens that you have, we're out of both countries now. You know, the the withdrawal, I think most would agree, was not ideal. Um, many, many people I've had on here, especially from the Green Beret community, report about the tactics of going in year and a half, two years, breaking down the, the training camps, taking out some of the key leaders, building militia, and then leaving again is a resounding kind of what we should have done that I'm getting from them. What has just been your perspective, boots on the ground, of those 20 years? And, and what can the people listening, what are some of the takeaways that we need to learn from this last 20 years so that we don't repeat it? God forbid we go to war again. I think the main thing to learn is don't go into a place unless you have a plan to get out of it. I mean, Afghanistan, Iraq, no exit plan. And Iraq, particularly, the most god-awful planning by the Americans. I remember the uh, administration of uh, El Paul, you know, Bremer, the, the viceroy. I mean, crazy. They tried to revamp the Baghdad Stock Exchange, which they were rebuilding on the grounds of the hotel that we were in. Mel, Mel was there at the time. Who do they put in charge of the Baghdad Stock Exchange? An Iraqi? An Iraqi economist? A European economist? A 23-year-old American political flunky. Stock Exchange never got off the ground. I mean, we, I think, are very... <laughs> well-meaning people, and I think we occasionally get hoisted by our thought of our own ability to solve everything, that we are just better than everyone else. We have an answer for anything, and damn it, you'd better go along with it because we're the only ones with an answer. And the reason we're the only ones with an answer is we're the ones with the money. 
But I mean, we couldn't buy success in Iraq. We didn't buy success in Afghanistan. We and they, from what I've seen, there is a terrible misunderstanding of the cultures of these other countries. You know, they in Iraq, I think the Americans never understood the importance of tribalism in the Iraqi culture. And they they never, you know, they thought, oh, Sunni and Shia, that's the big divide. That's the big divide. But it's clan, tribal, family. The divisions go on and on. We never understood, we never grasped how widespread a society was that there was more than just a label, Sunni, Shia, Republican, Democrat. No. It was, are you an al-Takriti, an al-Baghdadi, an al-Samari? You know, I mean, we didn't get it. We weren't smart enough. And God knows, if we get involved in another adventure of that size, we'd better put in a lot of homework and we'd better absorb a lot of people who know what the hell they're doing. Well, I've heard people say the same thing with Afghanistan. There's so many small tribes in there. And that's, again, a lot of the, the Green Beret especially report that. Like, you, you can't blanket say, we're going to help your nation when those people believe their nation is just the village that they inhabit. That's exactly right. I mean, when I, when I it was in Afghanistan, we started off in... If you look at a map of Afghanistan, <clears throat> in the northeast side, there's a strip of land, a very strip of land, you know, that borders on China. That's how far east it is, right? And that's where the Northern Alliance was based. So we joined them there, and we stayed with them for months as they advanced out along. And everybody thought, oh, well, the Northern Alliance – they're the guys, you know, they're going to overthrow and they're going to, you know, be the good guys. Well, the Northern Alliance had some rudiments of some command structure. But elsewhere in Afghanistan were pretty substantial, well-equipped, semi-trained armies of warlords. And we never understood you've got to reach out to them too. You've got to get them on your side before you can even think about consolidating anything. Just absent-minded, short-sighted. Too complicated for us. Yeah, well, thank you for it. I mean, this is this is education for most of us listening because we weren't there, and that's the point. And you don't get these lessons through our screens at the moment. Now, I want to just bring up one gentleman, then we'll go to some closing questions, but I think it's important. I've had people on here that were, um, you know, interpreters, uh, Afghani interpreters, Iraqi um, interpreters, Afghani commandos that, you know, were safely brought to the U.S. And I've had people on like Tim Kennedy and some of the other guys that were parts of those movements that brought some of their allies home. You work with a guy, Anwar Abbas Lafta. So tell me about him, because I think it's important as well for people to understand we we allow again i think the media mainly to to tar the entire nation with that brush oh we're at war with afghanistan we're at war with iraq when the reality is extremists in those countries are 
you know, brutalizing their own people primarily. And we don't get that. As you said, you get the raghead and all this stuff. They're all bunched together. So tell me about him and the heroism that he did and ultimately risking his life. Anwar Abbas was one of our translators, and I also call them fixers. Um, he's a, just a, a, very, a very, very nice man. And one of his jobs when he wasn't actually translating or, or out with us somewhere, uh, was to watch uh, the Arabic television stations and, and tell us what they were saying, right? <laughs> and he, we, we had a, a room for him and a couple of his mates set up with three or four television screens um, a, a ways off our, our newsroom. <laughs> Anyone would come into the newsroom, running into the newsroom, clapping his hands, raising him above the, clapping his hands and yelling, breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd say, what? And he would tell us what Arab channel such and such was saying. And I'd say, good, well, that's good. But we kind of knew that for a, a day or so. I'd say, well, the the breaking news and where where are you getting that? He said, "Well, that's the the little sign they put at the bottom of their screen." <laughs> I said, uh, "Okay, every time you see it, yeah, come in." <laughs> he was a, a very very nice guy, um, and we had a number of our Iraqi employees who were threatened by neighbors, uh, maybe not threatened, but, you know, um, words of anger were directed toward them because they were, they were working for us. You know, the, it wasn't CBS particular, it was the West, right? Um, and we, 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 we protected them as best we could. You know, sometimes we wouldn't let them go home at night, for instance. We'd keep them in the hotel with us for a night or two. Uh, we didn't want them to establish any pattern, in other words, right? Um, and An Anwar uh, went, went home one night. He got followed home. He was in his house uh, with his sister, whose name is Asia, who is a good friend of mine now. She's, uh, I helped her out. Um, she's in, in Arizona. Um, and suddenly, masked guys broke through the door, you know, accused Anwar of working with the devil. Anwar really couldn't deny it. He said, but, you know, my, his sister was telling me, my job is nothing, you know. I don't like them, but they, you know, they pay me a little, you know. They took him away, right? We got nowhere. We, we could, you know, the Iraqi police was absolutely not interested. The American military couldn't be bothered, you know. We had little, if any, investigative powers, um, but, you know, I, I told Asia, I said, you know, if you 
if, if the group that took Anwar, uh, you know, uh, contacts you, tell them that we will pay for his release. You know, we're we're happy to to have him released, and we will pay you. You know, we'll we'll work out something. You know, they never never contacted her. Uh, three days later, his body was discovered, and he'd been badly treated. But Asia became a good friend of mine <laughs> because uh, I was able to wheedle CBS uh, for some insurance policy money for for Asia as a dependent. <laughs> but yeah, I'd like to say. Uh, I really admired the local people that uh, that worked for us. I mean, we didn't overly pay them, believe me. Uh, but they were, they, I think they worked for us certainly because it was a source of income that wasn't available on the labor market in, in Iraq. There just weren't enough jobs uh, going around. Um, but a lot of them actually, I like to think they admired what we were doing. They thought, you know, maybe what you guys do is important. <laughs> and I thought that would be a great legacy to leave. That'd be okay with me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, just one more point. We talked about, you know, the, the kind of devolution of, of some elements of journalism in this country. With this global lens that you have, I always love it when we discover that a country is doing something really well. Norway's prison systems, Finland's education. Um, are there any news agencies, and it could be international, that you do respect still, that maybe people listening can see kind of what journalism is supposed to look like and maybe find our way back there again? Easy. BBC. Only. Easy. <laughs> I would have said the same thing, but obviously I wasn't trying to load the question. <laughs> Well, Larry, I'm going to let you go because I know that you've got a hurricane bearing down. You've got other things you need to do. But I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and sharing your story. I mean, in in this climate that we're in, I agree that there's a lot of divisiveness going on. And to be honored to sit down with someone who's really heralded as you know one of the greats in journalism. Firstly, I was nervous as hell to interview you. But secondly, um, to just to share your knowledge and your perspective, I think is invaluable. So thank you so much. I hope I made some sense and I was helpful to you, but thank you. What you're doing is important and the discussion about journalism should be a never-ending one. Mm -hmm.